The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. One of the minor issues that confront the NDE community from time to time is its name itself. That is, what qualifies as a near-death experience? Do you have to actually die to experience one? And, and if so, what defines death? Is it when your heart stops or when your brain, brain activity stops? Well, my working definition of an NDE is whenever your soul or consciousness leaves your physical body, and that from then on you know for a fact that there is another side to our existence. I call the definitional squabbles about death a minor issue because... I believe you are only truly dead when you are dead and not coming back into the, your dead body. Our guest today, Bruce Davis, Ph.D., has had what he describes as three major NDE-like experiences in three different cultures. The first was as a graduate student. It happened through a Hindu shaman in India who told, uh, took him to dream classes on the other side. Here, spirits and people would receive spiritual lessons. Afterwards, Bruce lived with psychic healers in the Philippines, at an ashram in India, and with Balinese priests in a remote part of Bali. Bruce lived for 12 years in Assisi, Italy, where he was deeply immersed in Franciscan spirituality. And he writes about NDEs for the Huffington Post. Uh, Bruce is the author of several books, including The Magical Child Within You, Monastery Without Walls, and most recently, The Love Letters. St. Francis and St. Clair of Assisi meet Pope Francis. Bruce is currently retreat director of Silent Stay Retreats near Napa, Florida, where people with profound spiritual experiences come to explore, integrate, and expand upon their experiences. Bruce, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's good to have you. Thank you for getting up early in California. Yeah, um, I mean, it's in Napa, California, not Napa, Florida. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, did, uh, perhaps we should begin with the story of your shaman and what dream classes are all about. Yeah, I was in graduate school um, studying psychology, and uh, we had a seminar on a ranch up in Northern California. And one night I was sleeping. It was one of those really clear dreams. And this woman from the class who said she was a shaman, in those days I didn't know what a shaman was. This was the early 1970s. She came mm. into my dream and sat on the end of the bed. And I woke up very startled. And uh, the next morning I went to her, and before I could say anything, she said, do you remember me coming to you last night? And then she said, "You, I've been expecting you, and you will be my student. And then for four years, I was her student. She would come into my dreams and take me to uh, into the dream worlds, which she called them. And um, it was a very it was a very interesting place, you know. There, in this class, there were people and there were spirits, but the class had no walls, no ceiling, no floor, but it felt like a class. And it was just this bright light. We're in this great big bright light. And there was no teacher either. And people would just ask questions, and then the answers would just come to them. And uh, the shaman, the teacher taught me that what they were doing was assessing the, the Akashic records. I don't know if you know what those are. 
yes. their records are kept on the other side, and people would ask questions and get the answers. Anyway, I'm just a normal kid from Denver, Colorado, studying psychology, and all this was very strange for me. I, I would write her letters. She would come into my dreams. And one time she came into my dream, and I said, you know, this is not real. This is just a dream. And she said, oh, yeah, and she pushed me, and I woke up on the floor. Mm. And so what she it was telling me was that life is a dream and that you need to wake up out of the dream. And I kept asking, well, how do you do that? And these classes sort of woke me up to a bigger perspective. But um, she said I was her most stubborn student because there was nothing in my culture, in my background, to understand this. You know, in psychology, I was studying uh, Freudian and Jungian dream analysis. And she told me that's all, that's really not important, all that stuff. That's just your personality. Um, you know, she said what's important about dreams is that uh, lucid dreams, when you have a dream that you're flying or you have a dream that you're underwater and you can breathe underwater or you have a dream where you're walking through walls. She says that's the training a shaman goes through to wake up, to realize that their personality in this world is only a little bit of the bigger picture of the big world. And so um, this went on for quite some time and I started to learn about dreams. I met my first wife in a dream. Uh, I dreamed about her and then kept looking for her every day. Then about six months later, I met her at a friend's house and recognized her immediately from the dream. And you, then did, after, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, during your dream experiences, did you also have any out-of-body experiences? Well, I don't really don't know what that means. You know, when you're in a dream, it's totally clear. It's like as clear as you and I talking now and totally real. And um, I would be flying, and I guess that's an out-of-body experience. And it's not, you know, in, you don't, I don't have any awareness of where my body is at that time. Mm-hmm. I was um, thinking the way your shaman came to visit you, did you find yourself at some point being able to visit somebody else? No, people have told me I have visited them in their dreams, but I'm not conscious of it. She is conscious of it. She could meet with a group of people and tell each one what happened in their dreams, except for you, you never went to sleep, so I got tired of waiting for you to go to sleep. And this person over here, you didn't give me permission to come in. So she could consciously do that. And what was interesting to me is that you know, she had all kinds of psychic abilities. She um, could communicate with her shaman telepathically. I was once sitting in the woods with her in California, and she said there's going to be an earthquake. And about 20 seconds later, there was an earthquake. And I was really curious, like, where did all this come from? And I think the big difference in her culture is that she was raised by every mother in the village who was nursing. And every father or every uncle in the village was her father. Mm. And she told me a lot about that kind of love. And in that love, these abilities and this connection to the other side was natural. And I was just thinking about our culture. You know, I was raised by loving parents, but they have no belief in spirituality. When you die, that's the, you're dead. There's nothing that nothing happens. You know, and that's very deep in our culture. And... uh So I think mainly in her culture, all these spiritual abilities and being able to go to the other side at will and come back was natural because she was living deep in her heart. There was so much love. Now, you went on to get a Ph.D., I take it, in in, um, psychology. 
How did you how did you uh, integrate your uh, what you learned from the shaman with the courses that you were taking and the papers you were writing and so forth? Yeah, that was quite a challenge. I always had a very special school. Today it's called Saybrook. In those days it was the Humanistic Psychology Institute. And I was looking at all the different therapies in those days and looking at my teachers, and they're all so serious. And the therapies about were rediscovering the pain of our early childhood and at birth and all these kinds of things. <clears throat> and so my thesis was a book I wrote called The Magical Child Within You. And it was, I'm told it was the first book on the inner child, but not just a painful child, but our innocence, our humor, our joy, you know, um, our big spirit. You no know, children have a big spirit. And so that book was my first integration because half of it was about psychology and half of it was about meeting the shaman and what she was mm-hmm. teaching me. And um, so that was my start, uh, that book, The Magical Child Within You. Wow. And then after this, uh, I guess your next cultural adventure was uh, living with psychic healers in the Philippines. Tell us about that. Yeah, my wife and I um, went to, first we stopped in Bali, which is an incredibly spiritual culture. And then oh, we went okay. to the Philippines. And, uh, well, Bali has remained a part of my life ever since. I keep going back and taking groups there. It's so, it's so special. And we went to the Philippines and lived with the healers. And the psychic healers in a very remote, poor village. And these people were so giving and so loving, and they had nothing, really. Every night they would feed us first and then feed the family. And it took me a few weeks to understand why. They wanted to make sure we had enough food before they had the rest of the family eat. And that was just the basis of the culture. And their spiritual healing, and at night um, the mother of the house would go in trance, and different relatives would speak from the other side and talk to the family. And all this was very normal. And a lot of the experiences that uh, near-death experiencer people talk about, it's all normal in their culture. You know, there would be an angel standing in the room, and the lady we live with, did you see the angel last night standing in your room? <laughs> and the the main thing was that their culture, they had slowed down. And that was a huge experience for us. I remember once in the middle of the Philippines, we went and saw a movie. We went back to Manila and watched a movie. And that movie stayed inside of us for like four or five days, you know, because you become so open. And then when I came back from the Philippines, um, it was a big memory of being in the San Francisco airport and watching everybody running around. I just kept asking, where are they all going? What are they doing? And it was all so fast. And so ever that time, ever since that time, I've lived more or less on retreat, inviting people in retreat to slow down and to feel the presence in their hearts. You know, for me, the other side is not leaving my body. It's in my heart. I, when I go in my heart, this profound space opens up. It has no border, no boundary. You know, it's just very bright. And um, when we slow down, it's a normal part of us. And I've seen all kinds of normal people experience what we call the other side, but it's in our heart. It's not someplace else. Right. Let me ask you this. You know, the cultures of the Philippines and India and, and even Bali, they're so, um, the societies are so poor. Um, they do have to think about feeding their guests before they can feed themselves. Is there a, is there a trade-off, do you think, between being in touch with, with the, with the, 
with the heart as opposed to being um, more capitalist oriented like the way we are in this country? Yeah, well, that's a big question. When I came back to America from the Philippines, I asked, my God, this must exist somehow in our culture. You know, because I'm not a shaman. I'm not a Filipino healer. I'm just a normal guy from Colorado. Where is this in our culture? And then one night, uh, I was visiting Europe and offering retreats. And the first night in Europe, I had this dream of this great big valley and a bird landed on my shoulder and there's just incredible peace. And I woke up thinking about St. Francis, and I was not raised Christian, but my friends told me, no, it's a real thing. And there's a place in Italy, a town in Italy, with exactly that feeling. And so I went to Italy. I started taking groups to Assisi for many years, and then recently we lived there for 12 years. And to answer your question, St. Francis answered that question, but I think in Christianity we get it mixed up. It's not about being poor physically. It's about being naked and humble in our hearts. Mm. And that's what we're missing in our culture. You know, St. Francis, in his humbleness and his nakedness, he would climb on these mountaintops all over Assisi and all over central Italy. And he would just offer everything inside. And then he would sit in the silence. And he would have profound experiences. So I found my spiritual home in the West, in Assisi, Italy, because I'm not a Filipino, I'm not a shaman, uh, but St. Francis gives a very clear steps. And it's not about being poor physically, it's about uh, humility and being naked, and it's also about offering. You know, I spent a lot of time in Bali, and that culture is very beautiful. And the, I don't know if you know much about Bali, but babies don't touch the floor for the first nine months. They're held continuously by their mothers and the father and the uncle. They're always held. And at age two, in our culture, you know, the mother wants to get back to work right away. And the father's busy and whatever. And I think this, that makes the separateness from the other side so much more than needs to be. So in Bali, they're held. And at age two, you see them in the temples, and they're offering everything in their hearts. They offer everything in their hearts, and then they just sit in the peace, little two-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Do the so ball- they're, connect- so they're say- connected to the other side like that. Yes. And uh, in our culture, we want the kids to read and write by age two. And so I'm really convinced that it's the over-intellectualization in our culture that is the source of our separateness. Do the Balinese believe in uh, reincarnation? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It's very complex. You know, when a person dies, they leave out uh, a little coffee or a little cigarette for them for a while until they do the cremation ceremony. Mm-hmm. I've been to cremation ceremonies where the spirit of the person who died will come through a medium and talk about how they're doing. I mean, they have a very complex ritual. And do the, uh, do the children... Do they encourage the children to retain memories of past lives, or do they discourage that? To be honest with you, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they encourage the children are deep in this ritual of offering everything in the heart. You know, in our heart, we've got so much stress, we never get to the little flowers of the heart. And so St. Francis got to the little flowers of the heart, and that's where his mystical life came from. And Bali, Bali is an incredible garden island. So they get to the flowers of their heart right away, and they have this incredible peacefulness in all the people, and it comes from offering it. Yeah. And uh, 
I, w- I would love to go to Bali sometime. The next time you're taking a group, let me know because uh, I might join up with you. I'm leaving this Friday, but uh, <laughs> we go we go every year about this time of year and take a group and submerges into it. But what's interesting about Bali and St. Francis and even in Hinduism and with the shaman, the basic prayer is very much the same. You know, you just offer everything in your heart, everything that we're carrying, and then you find this great big space of peacefulness and no border. And then everybody has their own experience from that. People experience their guides. They experience a very bright light. The experiences are very much similar to people who have had near-death experiences. Yes. Now, 12 years in Assisi, I mean, I really envy you that. It's such a, a beautiful place. Were you there when uh, the earthquake did the damage to the church? Yeah, yeah, we were there for that, um, right, uh, and lived through that whole thing. And, and I understand they've restored a lot of the uh, a lot of the paintings and so forth. Yeah, it was very interesting. You know, I woke up in the middle of the night, and for the first time in my life, you know, because uh, I'm taught through dreams and stuff, I felt the actual presence of evil. And then, and then a few moments later, or a minute, the first big quake happened. Mm. And Assisi changed during that time. It was very sad. Um, they restored the buildings, but, uh, Assisi changed. It really, I don't know how to put words to it. The spirituality of the place changed. It's still special, but for me and for many, it's never been the same. Yeah. I, I felt the, I felt a, a, a magic of that place when I was there. That it was a place of goodness. It's, was some of that lost with the, with the earthquake? No, it's still. I think basically the essence is still there. But yeah. they did lots of construction. Like the Garden of San Damiano used to be a really magical garden. I mean, it was just incredible flowers and everything. And I literally have seen angels dancing in that garden. And then afterwards, they made it like a golf course. You know, it was a, like a putting green in there. And it just isn't the same at all as it used to be. And so a lot of the reconstruction, it was done not from a deep spiritual heart. It just did it. And, um, you know, mm. it's just, it's hard to explain. It just, it, no. from, from, CC changed. Uh-huh. I mean, it's still wonderful. Yes. We still lead retreats there. We have groups coming and people coming, and we guide them spiritually through Assisi, not as a tourist, but people really want to feel the heart of it. Mm. Uh, tell us about the ashram in India, what your experiences were there. Yeah, well, I was in Europe quite a bit leading retreats, and all my friends said, you know, you I got to go to India. There's this teacher there named Sai Baba who's incredible, and I learned from my shaman that I don't believe in gurus. You know, I believe in God is inside of us and everyone is special and nobody is totally special, so on and so on. But I finally went to India and I'm sitting in India and there's like thousands of people literally on the cement floor. It's really hot. And I'm asking myself, what am I doing here? I don't believe in gurus, but it's hot. I'm miserable. And then in the distance, a little man in an orange robe shows up. And the moment I saw him, I totally changed. <laughs> you know, my whole mind cleared, and I just totally changed. It was just, it was just infinite peace inside of me. Yeah. And so I went, I went several times, and I took some groups there. And the most meaningful time, and this was an out-of-body experience. Uh, uh, one evening, I climbed on top of a building in the ashram, and I was meditating, and I left my body. 
and then there's this great big white zone of just white light and there was no body and I felt myself unravel like a piece of string. You know how the little pieces get unraveled, unraveled and unraveled and pretty soon there was no string left and it was just awareness in this, in this incredible bright light and there was no beginning or end to me and, um, and that's really the teaching of this great saint, uh, guru about Sai Baba and, uh, that changed me a lot. You know, Lee, I really want to take a moment to thank you because, you know, I've had many experiences through my life, but your show and hearing these people, it's helped me look at the big picture and the big story. And you're doing a big service because I, even at the end of the day, I'm not from India, you know, and I'm not even, I was, I became Catholic, but I wasn't even raised Christian. And so, um, Listening to you and all the stories of the end of years has really helped me integrate and see the big story of my life. And um, it's been a big embrace. And I'm very oh, grateful for I really appreciate that. I I use these stories, these NDE stories in my work as chaplain at the hospital here in Maine. And I find them, you know, the people are so, as you say, the Western mind is so cut off from the, these possibilities People have had NDEs and haven't talked about it for, you know, decades because they were so embarrassed or put off by it. And I wanted to ask you, too, you said in one of your uh, notes to me that your retreat deals with a depression that sometimes comes out of NDEs. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, I recently gave a talk about that to the ASSIST conference, which is another NDE community. Um and I have depression at times too. You know, the love is so intense and so incredible. And then our world and particularly what's happening in our country these days is so separate and so depressing. It's hard to carry both. Yes. And um, what I found is that I, and I think we, uh, I need a strong spiritual life. And that helps sustain me. You know, I go into this place in my heart every day and that's my food, you know, that nurtures me. And living in a non-spiritual culture, I mean, in Bali, it's easy. In Assisi, it was bliss. It was very easy in Assisi. Even in India, it was easy. But living in uh, America, you know, we don't have that same source out in the world, so we have to find it inside of us. And that's a challenge. We have to live our joy and practice service. The big thing that happened to me in India was that I came back and I started feeding homeless people. And I always thought service was for other people to do. You know, I never thought me doing it. And my wife and I started taking teenagers in the streets of San Francisco. Every Friday night, we'd make 500 sandwiches. And we'd go and feed homeless people. And uh, that became my church in America. We did that for 10 years until we moved to Italy permanently. So service is a really big part to help us heal our uh, our depression, our separateness. That's what uh, we're doing through our church right now. We serve uh, meals Monday through Friday to 40 or 50 people homeless uh, or people that just don't have the money to buy food show up every day. And we're across the street from a homeless shelter for teenagers, and we do open mic nights uh, on Thursday nights for those guys and uh, and for others. So uh, you're right. Service is, is one one thing that really can link uh the the eastern cultures and the western cultures it just it's just so important that we all do something like that for ourselves and for others 
Well, service is the real church. And, uh, and for me, most churches in America are too intellectual. They're not deep enough from the heart. And so service is the, is the true church. Yeah. And your radio show is the true church. Just the <laughs> honesty and the humility and the givingness of your guests, it's great. Well, tell us a little about Silent Stay retreats that you do. Well, through the years, what's happened is that, um, I, like many of your experiences, I can't handle large, loud noises and I don't, can't handle crowds and the materialism of our culture and stuff. So I've lived more and more on retreat and in silence. And we invite guests to come to, to be in silence and to feel the, and to receive the quiet of our own heart. And in the quiet of our own heart, our experiences of the other side are very present. And I find most people cut those experiences off. And in silence, we can receive them more deeply and be with the love and the quiet and the peace. And everybody has their own experience. And so we have no religion here. We just have silence and quiet of the heart. And we're on top of a hill and beautiful nature. And so people love it. And I enjoy that they come because for me, it's community. You know, we support each other in the silence, just in our own experience. Are you familiar with the Yogananda a group out there in California? Yeah, they're in Southern California. Yes. And uh, I, I don't know them personally, but they're good people. I visited them before. Oh. Well, tell me, um, th- it was interesting that you said that you uh, weren't raised Christian, but you felt... Um, a, you you were called to the Catholic Church, and also your your recent book about Saint Francis and Saint Clair and the Pope. Tell tell me um, what brought you into uh, this relationship with Catholicism. I'm sure being in Assisi did to some extent. Yeah, well, it was I know I kept asking this question: Where is my home in the West? Because I'm not these other cultures, and Saint Francis became my home. <clears throat> and receiving communion and having a deep connection with the Holy Mother was very powerful for me. And this was not intellectual. This was a deep spiritual connection. So for me, being baptized, I had one of the highest experiences of my life. I felt all the saints coming into the room and blessing me. It was very beautiful. And um, so I, the church is full of problems. And then when the new pope came along, we were inspired to ma- write a book with love letters from Francis and Claire, is this man really a brother? What would the church look like if this pope was really a brother of Francis and Claire? So I had a great time writing that book. Yeah. Yes, uh, I I love what he's done so far and recently just ripped up the cardinals up one side and down the other for their recalcitrance in, in change. So. Yeah, he has a difficult situation. It's not easy. The church is so old, but his heart is new and young and beautiful. Well, uh, we love St. Francis here, too. My wife wrote a play about his life, and uh, the, the, the crucifix that we have in our church is uh, a replica of the one that uh, spoke to St. Francis. And, yeah, we have uh, a big one in our home. I'm going to get <laughs> your address and send you a copy of the book. Oh, I, I'd love to read it. Yes, it's, uh, yeah. it's, I was raised Catholic. Um, now I'm a congregational pastor. So because of, to some extent of the problems in the church, but, uh, it, it, there, there's a church out there for everyone. 
there's a form of worship for everyone. And so I, I encourage people to uh, explore religions along with their own um, insights, their own personal mystical experiences. You know, I tell people we all need community, we need spiritual practice, and service. Those are the three things that help ground us in this world. And uh, that helps us keep in touch with our experiences of the other side, which is really the, also this side. It's in our heart. Right. Um, Bruce, how can listeners find your books, and how can they find out more about uh, Silence Day Retreat? They can find everything at our website, silentstay.com, S-I-L-E-N-T-S-T-A-Y, silentstay.com, and it's all there. Okay, and your book's available on Amazon? They're on Amazon, and they're listed on our website. There's there's several books. Very good. Well, Bruce, unfortunately, we we are out of time. It goes fast. A half hour does. Well, I enjoyed it, and I mainly just really wanted to thank you, Lee. I don't know. You know, it's just listening and being with you in your heart or the air. I've been with all the sessions. I just integrated a lot of what's happened to me over the years, and uh, I have a deep, uh, deep gratitude, so thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I get more out of this, doing this, I think, than, than I certainly than I give. But uh, I want to thank our guest, Bruce Davis, for sharing his experiences with us today. And if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out that website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.